always amaze me That your kingdom come in my world and in my life Give me the food I need to live through the day Forgive me as I forgive the people that wrong me Your love is, your love is
So Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to preach in the power of your love, without fear, without flesh, without arrogance, and help us to see you, Jesus. Amen. When your heart is in your dream, no request is too extreme. As a little boy, I dreamed of being Zorro, and my heart was in my dreams. When I was 17, I was preparing to go to college, and my mom came to me one day and said, Peter, you can't go to college. We've spent all of your college money on buying you an authentic Spanish saber, a cape, a hat, a horse, and a ticket to New Mexico. You must live your dream. You're to be Zorro. Not really. But see, the point is that kids need help with their dreams. I mean, if you gave your little kids their dreams, that would just be mean, right? My son Coleman, when he was little, he came to me one day and he said, Daddy, you know what I want to be when I grow up? I said, what, buddy? He said, a backhoe. And I said, you mean you want to drive a backhoe? He said, no, I want to be a backhoe. Elizabeth, when she was little, one day she said to me, Daddy, uh, when I grow up, I don't want to be a mommy. And I said, oh, honey, why don't you want to be a mommy? And she said, because I don't want breasts. <laughs> and I said, well, sweetheart, um, just do me a favor, okay? Don't go wishing on any stars just yet. <laughs> just wait. Children need help with their dreams. And I need help with my dreams, Freud said our dreams tell us what we really want in the depths of the heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Jesus said out of the heart flows all manner of wickedness. Jiminy Cricket says anything your heart desires will come to you if you wish upon a star. Good Lord. Don't go around just wishing on any star. Bernard Shaw said, hell is where you must do what you want to do. St. Augustine pictured hell as uh, rooms, long rows of rooms, each sealed off, and with each, within each room it was a person in front of a little altar uh, to themselves, worshiping themselves. C.S. Lewis pictured hell as a place where everyone gets what they want and no one wants what they get for no one wants love. In Narnia, there's this tree that gives health and length of life and make ones like a god. And, and the witch in Narnia, she steals an apple from this tree. Aslan says to the children, she will loathe it forever. The children are confused by that, and then Aslan explains by saying this, things always work according to their nature. She has won her heart's desire. She has unwearying strength and endless days like a goddess. But length of days with an evil heart is only length of misery, and already she begins to know it. All get what they want. They do not always like it. Romans 1, Paul describes the wrath of God as getting what you want, as being given up to the epithumia, the deep desires of the heart our dreams. Freud said our dreams are what we really want, and he also said that our dreams are always egoistic. That is that when we dream our own dream, we always dream about ourselves. It's all about me. In other words, we each dream of a world all about ourselves, a world in which we each get our will, and I think we call that free will.
But if I always get my will, there's no room for any other will. There's no room for persons, right, with other wills. And I'm alone. Anything your heart desires. And my heart desires me. That is, my heart dreams of hell. And that's a problem. Well, fortunately, I'm not the only one with a will, not the only one with dreams and wishes. My father has wishes, kind of like this. Figaro, you know what I wish? I wish that my little Pinocchio might be a real boy. Wouldn't that be nice? Just think, a real boy. A very lovely thought, but not at all practical. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man, Adam, in our own image and likeness. You know, so far in Genesis, whatever God wills, he gets. Whatever God has willed has sprung into existence, light, expanse, Land, stars, moon. You see, God's will is truly free. Then God says, let us make Adam in our image. Our image. I think that would be free. Like a a free will. But you know, a heart desires hell... A heart desires hell to be utterly alone unless it wills another's will, unless it loves. Now, this is important, and I think you've heard it. God's a trinity. Three persons, one substance. Each person constantly wills the other's will in freedom. Three persons, one communion of will like a great dance. God is love in freedom. In Genesis 1, God wills another will named Adam. Yet if that other will does not will love, it might prove to be very impractical and painful. Let us make Adam in our own image and likeness. That's God's will. Scripture says he accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. He does as as he pleases. Uh, Let us make man in our own image and likeness. Some would argue that God really meant to say something like this. Let us make a few men in our own image and likeness. And let us make most men a gross distortion of our image that we will torture endlessly. But he didn't say that. He said, let us make man in our own image and likeness, his will, his dream. Genesis chapter 1, verse 30. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now that's the end of the sixth day, the beginning of the seventh day. Yet we look around at our world and we say, hey, it's not all very good. The economy sucks. I have heartburn. Everybody dies. And I have a will that dreams myself into hell. It's not good. Must not be the seventh day. And that's right. It's not the seventh day. By chapter two, we're back to the sixth day. And scripture describes how God begins to make Adam. God breathes into the Adamah, the dust of the Adamah, and uh, makes mankind, but not yet in his image. God tells Adam, the day you eat of the tree of the, or the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, you will die. He tells him that. But how does Adam know that 
God's will is good. If he hasn't eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good. I mean, how can Adam choose the good if he has no knowledge of the good? He's really not free to choose the good. You know, people say that in the garden, Adam and Eve had a free will. I don't think they had a free will. I think they had a random will. We confuse a random will with a free will. Simply choosing what you desire, we confuse with desiring to choose the good. Bondage is having to choose what you desire. Freedom is desiring to choose what's good. Does that make sense? Bondage is to have to choose what you desire. Freedom is to desire to choose what you have to, what's good. You know, my dog chooses what she desires. She does. She's not in the image of God, I'm pretty sure of it. Not like, not like you're going to be. My dog chooses what she desires. Eve and old Adam choose what they desire. At the serpent's tempting, they choose to take fruit from the tree. Now, it's hard to blame them for that choice because they didn't know. Uh, But once they took the fruit, they did know. They saw that they were naked and hid themselves. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. And yet the fruit works according to its nature. Uh, They knew all at once. They knew about the good but knew they were not good. They knew about love and saw that they did not have it. They were naked of love. They knew about God, but did not know God. They knew themselves. They became self-conscious. You see, the snake tempted Eve to create herself in God's image through the law in the power of her own flesh. God's dream with a twist a lie. So what Adam and Eve created was a lie. They created an anti-dream, an imitation dream, the imposter, this, the old Adam that we've been talking about, the me that I create, the kingdom of my judgments, disobedience, darkness, death, the doorway to hell. Like I said, we dream of hell. Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of Adam to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. That is, choose God, choose love, choose the good. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Not even one. You know, we may stumble across the good, accidentally choose something good, but we don't make a good choice with a good will, a free will, an undivided will, a will that loves in freedom that always loves love. Our will is in bondage to sin. You know, the history of Israel and and the law, the testimony of all scripture clearly reveals our choice is sin and death. Not a small problem, a big problem. Adam and Eve had a random will. And now they have A bad will, an empty will, full of lies, a will in bondage to sin and death. Adam and Eve are not in the image of God, and so most people seem to think God didn't get his dream, for God created a will that trumped his own will. Can we trump God's will? Is your will to be an arrogant, sinful son of hell stronger than God's will to make you in the image and likeness of love? Is your dream of death 
stronger than God's dream of life. Well, in Genesis 3, the verse we looked at last week, God shows up, curses the world, and uh, we would expect him to just obliterate Adam and start over, right? (laughs) Screw that up. Start over. But he didn't. Perhaps he's not finished. He has not said, it is finished. Not yet. Genesis 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them, covered them. Adam is clothed with a sacrifice of love. It's a picture of Jesus Christ and him crucified. He is God's judgment. He is God's decision. He is the good. He destroys the old Adam and is the new Adam, the finished man. He is the perfect image of the invisible God. And scripture tells me to put him on, to put Christ on, uh, to put on the new man, the new Adam, the new self, to put this on. This is the me that God creates. Scripture tells me to put him on. I can't create him. He creates me. I really can't choose him. He chose me. I may think I choose, but I was chosen to choose. Jesus said this to his disciples. Hey, you guys, you didn't choose me. Now, don't you think they thought they did? He didn't choose me. I chose you. He is the good, and he chooses me to choose him. He chooses us. And he chooses within us. The Bible, you know, doesn't use the term free will. Except some translations that talk about free will offerings and stuff like that. It doesn't really use the term free will. Instead, it uses terms like faith, hope, love. Genesis, or Galatians 2.16. Paul writes, I'm justified by the faith of Christ. Some translations change that to in Christ, but in the Greek, it's the faith of Christ. And 2.20, uh, I live by the faith of Christ, his faith in me. He writes, Christ, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. So faith in heart is Christ in heart, writes Augustine. Christ in you is the hope of glory, writes Paul. He who loves is born of God and knows God. God is love, writes John. So faith, hope, and love in you is Christ in you. 1 Corinthians 1. God made Jesus our wisdom, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Philippians 2. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work. 1 Corinthians 2, we have the mind of Christ. So you see, a good choice in us is Christ Jesus in us, the new man on us, goodwill in us, free will in us, Christ Jesus in us. God finishes Adam with Christ, and Christ is the image of God. Let us make man, Adam, in our own image and likeness. Maybe God does get his dream, his wish. He covers Adam, and Adam means humanity, all humanity. Listen to these verses we read last week. Again, you can see them up on the screen. Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where my bad choice increased, God's good choice abounded all the more. 
Romans 11.32, he goes on, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Romans 14.11, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. 1 Corinthians 13.45, Thus it is written, The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Uh, Verse 49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam... All die, so also in Christ, so as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. (laughs) I mean, apart from last week, have you ever heard a sermon on those verses? Anyone? Isn't that scary? I don't think I have. And those, my friends, are not ancillary Bible verses. (laughs) They lie at the very heart of the Apostle Paul's theology, New Testament theology. And they certainly seem to indicate that God gets his wish, that his dream comes true, (laughs) and Adam becomes a real boy. He makes all humanity. In his image. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now I believe that there is an eternal Eonios punishment, an eternal fire, a narrow gate, a narrow way, a chasm that none can cross, Hades, Gehenna, a lake of fire. In two weeks, we're going to preach on judgment. Believe me, there is judgment. On our website, I talk about all this stuff and all these scriptures. I believe all those things, but none of those things means that God does not get his wish. None of that renders the following sentence untrue. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Maybe I'm missing something. But if so, no one has shown me what the something is. Not yet. And so maybe God really does get his wish. But here's what's utterly confusing. Why are we, the church, so threatened by the idea that God might get his wish? That God might get his dream? Sometimes it's almost like we don't want God to get his dream. Thomas Talbot is a graduate of my old seminary, Fuller Seminary, and now he's a philosophy professor at Willamette University. In one of his articles, uh, he points out this truth. And so I'll put this down for a minute so you can look at this. These are three propositions that I cannot believe all at once. Number one, God is all-loving and so loves all and wishes that all would be saved. Number two, God is all-powerful. That is that his will is free. His dreams come true. And number three, hell, and you know when I usually talk about hell in here, I'm talking about Hades or Sheol. Number three, hell is endless. You know, some people think scripture says this, but I think it says just the opposite. Revelation 21, verse 4. Read it. Well, you see, this is what um, Talbot points out. If God loves all, number one, and has the power to save all, number two, then he will save all, and hell must come to an end. If number one and number two are true, then number three is false. Calvinists and and Augustinians argue that number two and number three are false, or are true. Got that? 
And number one is false. That is, God doesn't really love all, for God has predestined some to endless wrath. Arminians, usually Baptists, Methodists, etc., etc., argue that number one and number three are true, and so number two is false. God wants to save all. He really does, but he can't save all because some wills trump God's will. And so you see the result of that, you're saved or not saved by your will, your choice, your free will. You better choose. Stress me out. Well, anyway, Calvinists tolerate Arminians who believe number one. And Arminians tolerate Calvinists who believe number two. But if you believe number one and number two, people freak out and call you a heretic. And they act like you're saying Jesus does not matter when in fact you are saying Jesus is the only thing, the only thing that matters. You see, I think they're confusing Jesus and someone else. Last year I was talking with Philip Yancey about this. We went out to dinner one night. He was talking about how weird things had gotten for me, and he said something like, Peter, you don't have a problem with all of these ideas and questions that you're asking. Who's to say what's, what God will do beyond space and time as we experience them? But Peter, you've got to understand, it's like these questions touch on something primal in us. And you see, I think they do. And I'm really concerned that the primal thing in us is the power of hell. The old me. The primal lie. And so we fear that if God gets his dream, I won't get my dream. And my dream is me. My dream is hell. And so look at, look at this chart for a minute. You see, if I want to believe in the victory of hell, and I'm not saying that there isn't a hell, but if I want to believe in the victory of hell, that hell gets the last word, that hell is the end instead of Jesus being the end. If I want to believe in the victory of hell, endless hell, Perhaps I don't want to believe that God is all love, number one. The scripture says God is love. If I don't believe in love, I don't believe in God, and I stand condemned already. We spoke of this last time a little bit, but Jesus said, you know what, you do not do to the last and the least of these, you do not do to me. If I do not love the least in hell, perhaps I do not love Christ. He says brothers in one of those deals, but Jesus also said the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. If I do not love the least in hell, perhaps I don't love Christ. If I won't forgive, Scripture tells me I'm not forgiven. I stand naked, condemned in hell. You see, if I refuse love, in other words, if I refuse this, God's judgment of grace on me, I'm left with this. Hell. Me. So if I want to believe in an endless hell, perhaps I don't want to believe in a God who is all love, number one. Or perhaps I don't want to believe in a God who has all power, number two. Perhaps the church wants power. Perhaps religious leaders want power. Perhaps I want power. If I don't trust God's power, I'll have to trust my power. If I don't trust God's will, 
I'll have to trust my will. If I don't trust God's dream, I'll have to trust my dream. And if I don't trust God to create, I'll have to trust me to create. And me creates hell. Remember how Satan tempted Eve? It was God's dream with a twist. God said, let us make man in our own image and likeness. And Satan said, Eve, you better make yourself in God's own image and likeness. Adam, if you want to be a real boy, it's entirely up to you. There is something so seductive, so primal in that. Yes, Pinocchio. I've given you life. Why? Because tonight, Geppetto wished for a real boy. Am I a real boy? No, Pinocchio. To make Geppetto's wish come true will be entirely up to you. Up to me? Prove yourself brave, truthful, and unselfish and someday you will be a real boy. A real boy! That won't be easy. You must learn to choose between right and wrong. Right and wrong? But how will I know? <laughs> Do you get my point? The blue fairy is Satan! <laughs> I mean, this is a heavy night at church, right? You come and you get all this theology, and then you find out that the blue fairy is Satan! How will I know right from wrong, asked Pinocchio. You know, Eve chose the law for a conscience. Pinocchio gets a talking cricket for a conscience. We need something better than that. Well, the blue fairy says to Pinocchio, to make Geppetto's wish, to make the father's wish come true, will be entirely up to you. She said just what Satan said and what our hearts desire. You know, I think we think God creates us to a point and then leaves the most important part up to us, the substance of his image, free will, that is God's will, which is love, which is God, and we can't create God. And to dream we can is hell, a dream of hell. Well, Pinocchio, you know, in the story, he learns to be good, to tell the truth, never play pool or chew tobacco. He learns to be good. And then Pinocchio saves his father from the belly of the whale in the depths of Sheol. Get that? Old Pinocchio, wooden Pinocchio, saves his father and his father's dream from hell and becomes a real boy. Our old man does not save our father's dream. Our old man is not our father. Our old man does not save our father's dream and make us a real boy. Jesus is the new man who descends into hell and saves our father's dream and makes us in our father's image. What I'm saying is simply this. I don't create me. God creates me with his grace in Christ Jesus. You see, the primal lie is this, that I create me. But the reality is that I damn me, and God saves me. And that is all a part of how God creates me. I'm not saved by my will, my choice, my judgments. I'm saved by God's will, God's choice, God's judgment, which is grace. And as long as I think I'm saved by my judgments, I'm stuck in hell, for my judgments are hell. What po most people mean by free will is my will, which is emptiness, death, and hell. You see, when I don't trust God's judgment... God's power, this, I trust 
my judgment, my power, my choices, this. So we think this saves us when in fact this is precisely what we are to be saved from. That's a problem. So to trust God's power, to really trust God's power and God's judgment is the death of my power and my judgment. You see why nothing in this entire world is offensive as grace. It kills our old man. To trust God's power is the death of my power. So we don't trust God's power, for it is the end of our power. And we don't trust God's power, for we don't understand God's power, because God's power is the power of love. You see, God creates through giving. And we create through taking. So to make ourselves winners, we think there must be losers. To make ourselves first and best, we think others must be last and least. That's primal. It's like survival of the fittest. You know, everything you eat is because something else dies. It's basic to reality as we know it. To make ourselves first, we make others last. We make scapegoats. But God came to earth in Jesus and made himself the scapegoat made himself last, made himself least. He said, Eve, take, take from me, Eve. Take my body, take my blood from my tree. Eve, take from me, but I give me. I forgive me to you. Sin increased and grace abounded all the more. It's the power of surrendered power, the power of love. You see, love makes space, and then love gives itself away. God makes space, a space that you think is you. He's making it with you. Then God fills that space with himself, the true you. God gives you a random will that becomes a bad will or an empty will, and God fills it then with goodwill. And you see, what he takes, really is nothing, emptiness. And what he gives is everything, himself, fullness. We are saved and created 100% by grace through faith, and you have nothing to boast about. All you can boast about is hell. The cost of being created is believing. I am created. In other words, I'm created by grace. How else could it be? The cost of being created is believing that I am created. In other words, I am created by grace through faith and this not of myself lest I should boast. God freely wills that you would will him in freedom. You have been chosen to choose, and that choice is a gift. So you see, you're not saved by your choice. You are saved from your choice, by God's choice in you, Jesus Christ in you. And the law is not your conscience. Talking cricket is not your conscience. <laughs> Jesus is your conscience. God's choice in you. And this is how the choice comes to you, how God's judgment comes to you. I think this is where we get confused. This is where we miss it. This is how God's choice, God's judgment comes to you. Bishop A. T. Robinson writes it this way, and I think it's pretty good. He writes, to man there remains two ways. And the one that is crowded is still the one that leads to destruction. And many there be that find it. But at some point on that road, be it far or near, each one finds also something, or rather someone else. It is a figure stooping beneath the weight of a cross. Lord, where are you going? asks every man. And the answer comes, I'm going to Rome, to Moscow. To New York, 
to be crucified afresh in your place. And no man in the end can bear that encounter forever. For it is an encounter with a power than which there can be nothing greater, a meeting with omnipotent love itself. This love will take no man's choice from him, for it is precisely his choice at once. I think I'd say it this way. This love will take no man's choice from him, for it is precisely your choice God wants to create. Christ takes no man's choice, for our choice is nothing. He takes no man's choice except that he gives his choice, God's choice, everything. He takes darkness by giving light. He takes lies by giving truth. He takes my sin by filling it with mercy. He takes our emptiness by filling it with himself. He is God's heart coming to fill our empty dreams. If God's heart is in your dream, no request is too extreme. He is God's heart and he is the bright and morning star. He is unquenchable fire. He is love. Robinson continues. Love's will to lordship is inexhaustible and ultimately unendurable. The sinner must yield. God has exposed the strong right arm by which he has declared that he will curb the nations. And lo, it is pierced by nails, stained with blood, and riveted in impotence. Is it to us to an offense and foolishness? Yet this is the authentic quality of love's omnipotence. The weakness of God is stronger than men, 1 Corinthians 1.25, than any man. For I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself, John 12.32. Christ, in origins, old words, remains on the cross so long as one sinner remains in hell. Well, we know this. The power of God is the cross of Christ, the power of love. God is love, and there is no power greater, not even your dreams. Your dreams of hell are not greater than his dreams of you. So you might as well just stop dreaming of hell and surrender to heaven. This is the gospel. You are not the chooser. You are the chosen. You are not the elector. You are the elected. You are not the dreamer, but you, in fact, are God's dream. For in the beginning, God the Father in the power of God the Spirit. Turn to God the Son who is his heart and is the bright morning star. And he said, let us, let's do it. Let's create Adam. Let's create man in our own image and likeness. And this is how he gets his dream. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body I give to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he said, this is my blood of the covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. And so we invite you to come forward and surrender this old man and receive this new man. I have been crucified with Christ, writes Paul. Instead of nailing, I'll just stick it up there. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. It's really, really, really good, Eve, Someone lied to you before. It's good.
Jesus, you are the love of God for us, and you're strong. I look at Scripture, and the more I look at it, the more I think there is no one, no one, that what I would rather uh, be God than you, Jesus. Not even me. You're good. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, uh, before you go, let me say, whenever I speak on this kind of stuff, people freak out because they think that when they get to heaven, God's going to say, explain to me uh, how long hell lasts and the nature of space and time. But I don't think he is. I think he's going to say something like, do you love me? Do you believe I love you? And then you're home. But I have to say, this raises lots of questions for people. And so two years ago, I wrote together, I pulled together like a 200-page document because I just wanted to search scriptures. And the more I searched scriptures, the more I thought, hey, none of these other scriptures cancel out these scriptures that we haven't been looking at. In fact, they just make them that much more amazing and that much more exciting. And if you want to go online and look at that, it's under the theological something or other prompt on the website. It's important that you also know these aren't ideas that I just pulled out of my, you know, whatever. Um, this is great theology, uh, probably the predominant theology of the early, early church. Um, also the theology of people like Karl Barth and John Paul II and Hans von Balthasar and uh, Jürgen Moltmann. And uh, it, for some reason, on the popular level, we don't pay attention. And I think maybe part of that is we think to ourselves it's so complicated. Um, and you see, I don't think it is. I think we're complicated. I think the evil one has made us complicated. I think it's actually pretty simple. God is simple in a wonderful way. God is love. And he who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who, lo- who does not love does not know God. God is love. Now you're kind of stressed out, aren't you? Right? Because you're going, do I love or do I not love? We're going to talk about that next week. It's called judgment, okay? Oh, two weeks, yeah. In two weeks, because uh, we'll talk about the flaming sword at the edge of the garden, and God knows that part of you doesn't love. That's why he wants to nail it to his cross, and the part of you that does love, he says, guess what? (laughs) I've been hanging around. So believe the gospel. It's really good news. It's good.